Good morning, everyone. Um, if, if we haven't met, my name's James, and uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be with you here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones with you, um, we'll be jumping to James chapter 1, and we are right at the bottom. Um, but before we do that, and while you do that, uh, can I pray for us? Go ahead. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness to us, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are Lord and in control and over us and over our lives. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are in us and with us and that you speak to us through your word. So Jesus, we come as your children. We come as your ambassadors and your citizens in, this king, in your kingdom. And we come as your servants longing to hear from you. So would you speak to us for your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us today, we're continuing in our series as we work through the book of James. And actually what we're doing this morning is we're jumping a few verses down to the end of James. James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. That way Mike can come back next week. Um, <laughs> it's all good, bro. I'm glad that you're here. Mike can come back next week and he's going to teach us all about hearing and uh, hearers and doers of the word. Um, but this week we're in James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. So in your Bibles, would you read with me? Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. As I've already said, we're continuing our journey through the book of James. And it seems to me that as we've worked our way through chapter 1 so far, the same question keeps coming up. The same question keeps coming up. What does real faith look like in real life? What does real faith practically look like? look like in real life. Now that God has saved us through the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus, now that God has transformed us by his grace, our sins paid for, our eternity secured, and our identities forever changed as sons and daughters. Now that our faith, in other words, our trust, allegiance, and hope is in Jesus, how do we live? How do we live as followers of Jesus today? In other words, what does real faith look like? And this question is really at the heart of the book of James. And indeed, it's the question at the heart of our passage this morning. And in many ways, I think we can see verses 26 and 27 here as a kind of spiritual doctor's appointment, a checkup for our faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm terrible with going to the doctor. I avoid going to the doctor at all costs. Like, I hate it. I mean, I really don't like going to the doctor. And certainly not for checkups. I'll only go to the doctor if there's something really wrong. If I'm feeling really sick, then I'll go to the doctor. And I can just feel anyone in the medical field here just saying this is such terrible advice. And it is. It is. Because we need to have checkups. We need to have our vital signs checked from time to time. We need to check our pulse, our rate of breathing, our blood pressure, and our body temperature. We need to have checkups. Because we have checkups to know if we are healthy. We have checkups to know if everything is as it should be. And we have checkups to know if there is something wrong. So that we can do something about it. We can have that necessary procedure. We can make that necessary change so that we can live healthy, full lives. 
And the same is true for our faith. And this morning, James is kind of like our spiritual doctor, and it's time for our checkup. And in verses 26 and 27, James gives us a checkup for our faith, and he does so using three key tests. Three tests to assess and to illustrate what real faith looks like. So test number one, a controlled tongue. Would you look with me again at verse 26? Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. So James opens up verse 26 by speaking to those who consider themselves religious. Now, I think it's helpful to stop here and say, I don't think that James is speaking about religion here in the way that many of us do today. He's not speaking of religion as merely formal rituals, habits, or activities that people do. No, how James uses religion here in verses 26 and 27 is much closer to how we would use the word faith today. In other words, religion is not merely a matter of observing a bunch of formal practices. No, religion for James is a matter of the heart. Religion is a matter of our view and our worship of God and how we then live in light of that. What we do, what we say, how we live, all comes out of our heart. It comes out of our faith. Or in the words of James, it comes out of our religion. And James is writing those people who considered themselves religious. People within the congregations who consider themselves to be spiritual, to be mature, to be good with God. People who thought they had ticked all the right religious boxes. People who thought that their faith was healthy. People who thought that their faith was real. But James highlights a very significant problem. There were people who couldn't control their tongues. Those who consider themselves religious and who do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. It would seem that these Christians couldn't control their tongues. They couldn't control what they said to or about others. They never held back. They always said what was on their minds. They never thought before they spoke. There was no restraint no consideration, and no care in their speech. They couldn't control what came out of their mouths. They couldn't keep a tight rein on their tongues. And James uses the picture here of a wild horse with no bridle, no bit, and no reins. Now, if I'm honest with you, before this week, I had no idea what a bridle was. Um, but after some digging, <laughs> hopefully this, for all the people who like equestrian stuff, <laughs> I apologize already. But what I, what I think, and what I think a bridle is, it's the, the, the set of straps that go on a horse's head, which are connected to the bit, which is in the mouth, which is connected to the reins, which the rider holds. Is it okay? <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> but, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this equipment, this, this bridle, bit, and reins, allows the rider to control and guide the horse. With the bit in its mouth connected to the reins, and with the bridle on, the rider can tell the horse which direction to go, which direction to turn. He can tell the horse when to stop, and even cue the horse to back up. The point of a bridle bit and reins is that it gives the rider control. Because the horse, if a horse has a, a bit, a bridle and reins, the horse is controllable. But what happens when you try to ride a wild horse, which has never been ridden before, with no bridle, no bit, and no reins. 
Well, you probably wouldn't be able to get on the horse to start with. But if you did, you would have absolutely no control. Wherever the horse decided to go, you would have to go. If you wanted to turn left, but the horse wanted to turn right, guess which direction you're going? Right. If you wanted to stop, but the horse wanted to carry on galloping, guess what you'll be doing? You'll be flying through those fields. Essentially, the last and only thing that will happen is that you're filled and uncontrolled. And James's point here is that these Christians, and specifically their tongues, in other words, the words that came out of their mouths, were like a wild horse with no bridle, no bit, and no reins. Their speech was unrestrained, unconsidered, and uncontrolled. They thought they were religious, but they did not keep a tight rein on their tongues. And James very soberly and very pastorally says to them, you're deceiving yourselves. You might think that you're religious. You might think that you've ticked all the right religious boxes. You might think that your faith is real. But look at your life. Look at how you speak to people. Look at how you speak about people. Look at your unloving, unkind, and inconsiderate words. Your tongue, Christian, is out of control. So he says, my brother and my sister, you are deceiving yourselves. Your religion, your faith, when lived out by what you do and what you say, actually causes more harm than good. It actually doesn't mean anything. It's empty. It's worthless. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. The question becomes why? Why do words matter? Why does it matter if I control my tongue or not? The reason why words matter is because your heart matters. Words matter because they flow out of your heart. And there's a real biblical connection between the heart and the tongue. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 12, verses 33 to 35. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Just as the health of a tree can be seen through the health of its fruit. Jesus is saying that the health of your heart can be seen through your words. He's saying that what's in your heart comes out of your mouth. The words that we say and how we say them are a window into the health of our hearts. And as such, our words are a window into the health of our faith. Our words matter because our, our words do what our hearts have already done. The heart thinks. And our words are the way that, our, are, are the way that those thoughts are communicated and transferred to God and to others. The heart loves and every day the loves of our heart are intentionally or unintentionally communicated to God or to others. The heart worships. And our words reveal what truly rules our hearts. Our words matter because the heart matters. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so to use James's language here, if you can't control your tongue, 
you don't just have a tongue issue. If your, your issue isn't only your gossip, your issue isn't only your lies, your issue isn't only your unthoughtful, harsh words, if you can't control your tongue, your issue isn't your unloving truth or your untruthful love. No, if you can't control your tongue, you don't have a tongue issue. You have a heart issue. Words matter because your heart matters. So brother and sister, how is your heart? How are the words that flow from your heart through your tongue? Are they loving and encouraging, meant to build up people? Or are they used to break down, to distort truth, and to cause harm? How's your tongue? Because it's a window into your heart. Test number one, a controlled tongue. Test number two, sacrificial care. Would you look with me again at verse 27? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. If faith characterized by an uncontrolled tongue is worthless, then what does real faith look like according to James? Well, he gives his answer in verse 27. Firstly, that the faith that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, in other words, real faith is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. To look after orphans and widows. Now significantly, this has always been the call of God's people. Throughout the scriptures, again and again, God demands that his people would know, love, and care for the most vulnerable in their communities, especially the orphans and the widows. God's people are meant to reflect God's heart for orphans and widows. And this has always been God's call for his people. In Deuteronomy 14, as ancient Israel were about to enter into the promised land, God, through his prophet Moses, has this to say in verses 28 to 29. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Can you picture this scene in ancient Israel? Can you picture what it would be like? Can you imagine what it would look like here in the valley today? At the end of the year, every Christian in the South Peninsula would bring all their tithes of that year, all the money, all the food, all the practical services that they would usually give to the church. They would bring it to Komiki Road. And they would set up Komiki Road as this giant flea market, and there they would lay out all their tithes so that every orphan, every widow, every foreigner, and I mean, we live in a country with so much xenophobia and injustice done to our foreign brothers and sisters, what would an act of love like this say to them? That every orphan, every widow, every foreigner, every person in need in our valley would be able to come to eat, to get what they need, and to be satisfied. That the church would say, if you don't have a father, if you don't have a husband, 
If you don't have what you need, then come. Come and find help. Come and find care. Come and find a home amongst the people of God. And what does God say in response to that? I'll bless you. I'll bless you in the work of your hands. In other words, I'll take care of you. You take care of the orphans and the widows. You take care of the foreigners and the helpless. And I'll take care of you. To look after orphans and widows. The same was true of the early church. What do we see in the book of Acts? After the Holy Spirit descends on Pentecost, what do we see of that community? We see a people who were together and had everything in common. A people who sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. A people who made sure that no one was overlooked. No widow without a roof over her head. No orphan without food in his stomach. No person without the love, care, and presence of community in their lives. In the scriptures, the people of God are called to sacrificially care for the most vulnerable in their communities. To see them. To know them. To love them and to look after them. In the scriptures, the people of God are called to sacrificially care for the most vulnerable in their communities. To care for them spiritually. To care for them physically. To care for them communally. And what Deuteronomy, Acts, and James here in our passage this morning are doing is making sure that we as Christ followers understand that caring for those who are most vulnerable in our communities is not optional. Actually, caring for those in our communities is central to the Christian faith. It has to be at the core of who we are. It has to be at the core of what we do. To look after orphans and widows. But do you notice that James says, to look after orphans and widows in their distress? Where are followers of Jesus called to be as they look after orphans and widows? Followers of Jesus... Look after orphans and widows in the middle of their pain, in the middle of their hurt, and in the middle of their suffering. As followers of Jesus, we cannot truly love orphans and widows and anyone in need at an arm's length. As followers of Jesus, we cannot truly care for orphans and widows and anyone in need from a distance. As followers of Jesus, we cannot truly look after orphans and widows and anyone in need without deep interpersonal relationships with them. Just giving money is not enough for followers of Jesus. Handouts, checks, EFTs are not enough. They're good, but they're not enough for followers of Jesus. No, we're called to look after orphans and widows and anyone in need by sacrificially caring for them in their distress. In other words, to see them, to know them, to weep with them, to pray for them, to provide for them, and to do life with them. We're called to look after them in the middle of their distress, by entering into their pain, by being with them in their hardships, and by practically caring for them in the middle of their sufferings. Jesus isn't calling us to projects. He's calling us to people. Real people. With real stories. In real pain. Who are in this church. Who are in this community. Who are in our valley. 
Jesus is calling us to deep, relational, life-on-life, sacrificial care. Real faith for real people. And I think it would be only appropriate to stop and to speak to those of you who are orphans and widows here today. To those of you who have lost a parent, or both. To those of you who are single moms and single dads. Speak to those of you who are in the middle of your distress and pain and suffering. My prayer for you is that you would find your rest, that you would find your comfort, and that you would find your peace and strength in Jesus. That you would know the God of Psalm 68 verse 5, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, and a God who sets the lonely in families. My prayer is that you would know that God is with you, that he has always been with you, that he will always be with you, and that he's with you right now by his Holy Spirit living in you. And that you would be comforted by the true comforter. That you would be helped by the true helper. And that you would live in God's strength and not your own. Lastly, my prayer is that you would find a safe place amongst us as a church. That you would be known. That you would be cared for. And that you would be loved by your brothers and sisters in this church. And that you'd be willing to ask for help. That at Life Group, you wouldn't only say, please pray for me, I'm struggling in my faith. But at Life Group, you would feel safe enough to say, my brothers and sisters, I don't know what we're going to eat this week. I don't know if we're going to be able to put petrol in our car. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this week. And I pray that Common Ground South Penn, that we would be a people who would be lovingly who would lovingly, thoughtfully, and biblically come to their help. Secondly, to the rest of you, and the rest of us. Now, we're all on different stages in our journey of thinking through how to love, serve, and care for those in need. And over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be diving deep into what it practically looks like to love and serve the most vulnerable in our communities. But in the meantime, here are a few suggestions for where to start. Firstly, start with the people that you know. Start by caring for the people God has placed under the shade of your tree. Start by seeing the people, start by seeing the people in need in your families, in your workplaces, in your schools, and in your life groups. Care for them by truly knowing them. By knowing their past hurts, knowing their present sufferings, and knowing their future uncertainties. Care for them by praying with them and for them. Be with them, weep with them, do life with them. Start with the people you know. Secondly, start with the things you know. Start with the skills and gifts God has given you. What does it look like to care for people in need as a plumber, as a preschool teacher, 
as an accountant? What does it look like to care for people in need as someone who's retired? As someone who's single, as someone who's got a big, busy family? What does it look like to care for people in need for you? What skills and gifts has God given you so that you can care for those most in need in our communities? Why not start with the things you know? Lastly, start small. Start with small acts of love, care, and justice to one person, to one family, to your one life group. Commit to truly knowing them. Commit to truly loving them. And commit to truly caring for them, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, and even when it sometimes hurts. Start with the people you know. Start with the things you know. Start small and, oh yeah, don't do it alone. Do it together. Common Ground South Penn, would we be a people who look after the orphans and the widows and the most vulnerable people in our communities by God's strength and by his grace? Test number one, a controlled tongue. Test number two, sacrificial care. And finally, test number three, a clean life. Would you look in your Bibles again with me, please, at verse 27? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Real faith not only involves our controlled tongues and our sacrificial care for those in need, real faith also involves to keeping, keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. In other words, real faith is not only practically helpful, it's personally holy. Practically helpful and personally holy. As followers of Jesus, we are to be identified with society in its need, but not in its sin. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now James is writing to a people who were surrounded by all kinds of distracting and ungodly influences. Their world and their culture was filled with worldviews and lifestyles that directly opposed the standards and purposes of God. The world that they were living in was not neutral. Rather, in many ways, both subtle and blatant, the way of the world opposed the way of Jesus. And I think we can acknowledge the same is true for us today. James is saying that if we are not careful, if we are not critical, and if we are not consciously aware of the worldly attitudes, lifestyles, and worldviews in and around us, then we are at risk of being polluted by the world. Polluted by the world. Think about clothes after a day full of fishing. Now disclaimer, I am not a fisherman. I don't fish on the rocks, I read on the rocks. But think about fishing with me. Now, now I can appreciate that fishing has its perks. The peace and beauty of the ocean with the waves crashing, it's beautiful. We can get the thrill of hooking and fighting and then finally landing a big fish. Or maybe it's the great taste and satisfaction of eating what you've caught. Fishing could be cool for you, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> but, but, but let me ask you this. What is by far the worst part about fishing? 
The smell. <laughs> it is definitely the smell. The smell of bait. Those raw pilchards and prawns and squid that you have to bait on the hook. The smell of the fish itself. It's pretty muff, especially if you gut it with all the fish guts on it. Or just throw in a couple hours in the hot summer's day. What do you get? The smell of sweat. The smell of bait, the smell of fish, and the smell of sweat. Fishing stinks. Literally. <laughs> and it's almost, it's almost as if that smell gets in everywhere. All over your hands, all over your fishing gear, and all over your clothes. Clothes after a day full of fishing stink. But bear with me here. What would happen if you went fishing every day for a week and you wore the exact same clothes each and every day without washing them? And every day, you'd wipe a little more bait onto your shorts. And every day, you'd wipe a little more fish guts onto your shirt. And every day, you'd wipe a little bit more sweat on your cap. By the end of that week, what do you think your clothes would smell like? Here's a guess, absolutely unbearable. Your once clean clothes have been stained again and again, leaving them stinky, dirty, and stained. In other words, polluted. I think that's kind of what James is saying here. If we don't consciously stay aware of our worldly attitude, of the worldly attitudes, lifestyles, and worldviews in and around us, if we do not consciously wash the bait off our hands, wash our clothes, but instead wipe it all over us again and again, how do you expect that we stay clean? All we'll be left with is stinky, dirty, stained clothes. In other words, lives and faith polluted by the world. And as a church, we've looked at this together again and again in some detail. It means recognizing that we are constantly in a battle. It means recognizing that the world we live in is not neutral. And recognizing that we need to be proactive. Keeping yourself polluted keeping yourself from being polluted by the world may mean that you can no longer watch certain trending series or movies. It may mean that you can no longer play certain video games. It may mean that you cannot, may no longer be able to go to certain places anymore. But whatever you need to start doing or stop doing, James says, do it now. Like his older brother Jesus before him, James is saying, if something causes you to sin, if something causes you or others around you to stumble into sin, if something causes you to be polluted by the world, then cut it out. Cut it off. Don't entertain it. No practical measure is too extreme when it comes to our pursuit of living clean and holy lives. James says, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And what I think we need to see here in verse 27 is that our faith is not an either-or kind of faith, but rather a both-and kind of faith. Real faith, according to James, isn't only practical help for the vulnerable, nor is real faith only the pursuit of personal holiness. No, real faith for James is both sacrificially caring for those who are vulnerable, as well as living clean, holy lives in the world but not of the world. We are not to lose our purity in our pursuit of loving people, 
nor are we to neglect the needy in our pursuit for personal holiness. Real faith is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind by living clean, holy lives unpolluted by the world. But real faith is also loving your neighbor as yourself, especially the most vulnerable in our communities. Real faith is not one or the other. Real faith is both love for God and love for our neighbors. So three tests. A controlled tongue, sacrificial care, and a clean life. And to conclude, I'd like to take us back to the beginning of our time together. I'd like us to go back to the gospel. A controlled tongue, sacrificial care, and a clean life only begin with the gospel, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is the foundation of everything that we've spoken about this morning. The gospel. The gospel is our reason for living out our faith. The gospel is our strength for sustaining our faith. And the gospel is our hope when we fail in our faith. The gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ the word of God, the word of life, the word that spoke creation into being, that he would not say a word as guilty sinners put him on trial. That the one whose tongue never uttered an unloving, unthoughtful, and untruthful word would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the one who, to ev the only one to truly control his tongue would say, it is finished, as he paid for your sin and my sin, the gospel. The good news that God our Father has now adopted us into his family. Once orphaned, now adopted as sons and daughters of God. Once widowed, now wedded to Christ. Once a foreigner without a home, now citizens of God's kingdom because of the gospel. The gospel. The good news that Jesus, the Lamb of God, unstained, unblemished, and unpolluted by the world, would be stained with the wrath of God, would be blemished by the violence of men, and would be polluted by our sin, that we might be clean, that we might be forgiven, that we might now live as followers of Jesus today. Our sin forever washed white as snow by the crimson blood of our Savior, the gospel. Real faith begins with the gospel. Real faith is sustained by the gospel. And real faith that is lived out, that has a controlled tongue, that sacrificially cares for the most vulnerable in their communities, and that lives a clean and holy life unpolluted by the world, is lived out in light of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we are so aware of you this morning and we are grateful. We are grateful of your kindness and mercy. I wonder what the appropriate response for you would be this morning. Perhaps it's an awareness of your tongue 
and the words that you say and how you say them and how that reflects your heart. Perhaps it means you need to repent. You need to say sorry for the wrongs that you've done. You need to put measures in your life. Maybe it's your life group. Maybe it's your family. So that you can control your tongue. Perhaps it's the reality of caring and loving those most vulnerable in our communities. I pray that God through his Holy Spirit and his word would encourage you, would stir you, and would move you to seek to be equipped to serve those most vulnerable in our communities. Maybe you are that orphan and widow and person in need. Would you find your rest and comfort in Jesus? Would you turn to the gospel and enter into freedom, love, family, and joy? Or is it just putting in practical measures when it comes to living holy lives? Stop that Netflix account. Don't go to the beach. Do whatever you need to do to walk faithfully with Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are enough. Thank you that you are sufficient. Thank you that you challenge us to live different, distinct, radical lives in our communities. And Lord, we pray for your help. Would we be a people who truly follow you? For your glory and for the healing and peace of this people, of this valley. Amen.